1: Episode 398 with Dr. Evan Alexander and his partner, Karen. And uh, I can see you guys looking at me. I have an odd sweatshirt on. I just got in the mail. I designed it. I'm very happy with it. So I decided to wear it today. But everyone knows I've had Dr. Alexander on here a couple times. Author of Living in a Mindful Universe as well as Proof of Heaven, two of my favorite books. I'll put those links in the description as well as the top comment. And also behind Sacred Acoustics, which I do use to meditate, which I think is very useful. But Dr. Alexander and I were talking last time. And he mentioned his partner, Karen, and I said, I'd love to talk to her. And then she poked her head in, and I was like, there she is. So he set it up. But um, obviously, well, everyone knows you, Dr. Alexander. So Karen, how about you introduce yourself, please?
0: Well, I'm Karen Newell. I'm co-founder of Sacred Acoustics and Eben's co-author of his third book. And we travel, well, we used to travel. Now we do it online. We teach people how to use... Sacred Acoustics recordings to really experience the kind of concepts that Evan's always talking about about our inner world and consciousness. So that's what the recordings help us do.
1: Mm-hmm. And Dr. Alexander, um, could you go? Could you go in for the listeners real quick about Sacred Acoustics? About because I'm you are obviously far more intelligent than myself. The science behind why it works for everyone listening. It, one thing I think a lot of people do, myself included, is. I put on a box fan right next to me when I meditate, and its I don't think anything other of it's just white noise, mm-hmm. but I can find, even on the three modes it have, it has, I have different meditative experiences depending on the three different modes, just higher and higher like vibrations, it's a big box fan. But could you explain to everyone, kind of on segueing from that, what exactly a Sacred Acoustics is and how it helps meditation?
2: Well, um, I realized within uh, two years of my co- of coming out of my coma that the only way to seriously kind of investigate consciousness and understand it better was to explore it, to meditate, to go within and see what you can find there. And uh, early on, uh, I was made aware of this notion of binaural beats that uh, uh, slightly different uh, tones to the two ears can engender a very uh, interesting kind of elaborations of transcendental states of consciousness. This has been shown in the 20th century by people investigating out-of-body experiences and remote viewing uh, as a consequence of binaural beat brainwave entrainment. And so when I first met Karen in November 2011, we were both studying sound to get deep into conscious states. Uh, For me, that was that differential frequency brain wave entrainment that I believe has such power because it really is uh, manipulating circuits in the lower brainstem, very ancient circuits that are involved in the mechanisms of consciousness uh, in the brain. And, of course, this coming from a realization of the brain is not the producer of consciousness, but it's a filter that allows a more prime, primordial and unified consciousness to express itself as uh, conscious awareness in sentient beings like human, humans. Um, and having such a powerful tool, I found not only helps me to return to my NDE to develop uh, much richer relationships with the various uh, uh, entities of that realm that I encountered and described in my NDE, uh, And yet any one of us who is conscious or sentient can do the same thing. And that's why I think Karen's work uh, is so interesting sacred acoustics has been demonstrated to be a very uh, powerful uh, kind of tool to uh, enhance uh, conscious awareness and uh, that's why i enjoy doing this work but for me personally it's been very important in elaborating my own relationship with that god force that infinitely healing force uh, at the core of our awareness and uh, that's why our workshops encourage people to do the same thing
1: Okay, and, I, I, and as of the last times, I'll, I'll put the links to those workshops as well as y'all's website in the description. Karen, could you go into into why you think it is useful or why you know it is useful? I don't know why I'm saying think because I, I use it and I know it's useful. So it's it's why do you know it's useful? For the people that haven't tried it or who are un, sort of uninitiated, who are kind of looking at this with a, a raised eyebrow and they don't want to take my word for it, what are your thoughts on it?
0: Well, when I was first kind of exploring these kind of concepts, actually, my whole life, I had really been on a search for the capital T truth. You know, why are we here and what is our purpose? I wasn't finding those answers in secular school. I wasn't finding them in my church or my family. And so I kept looking and I started reading all kinds of other sort of Texts that are available out there, spiritual texts, esoteric texts, uh, that are kind of beyond the conventional. And what I eventually learned is that firsthand experience is what really gets you to understand this. Talking about it, reading about it, hearing people lecture about it is one thing. You can have an intellectual understanding, but to have a true, real, visceral understanding, you have to experience it. And so I had an ex- intellectual understanding of all of this. But I really wanted to experience it, and meditation was the kind of foundational uh, skill that was that was really recommended. And so I set out to try to learn to meditate, to just kind of take that first step. And it was incredibly challenging. At the time, I was a busy project manager, a mother of a teenager. I was trying to, you know, find a moment in my day to quiet my mind, yeah. and the classic instructions are to you know just go within and focus on your breath just feel Mm -hmm. that focus of your breath and if your mind wanders return your attention to your breath so my mind would just wander the whole time I never thought there was any usefulness to it I didn't have any benefits I thought where's my you know, light from above, where's the cloud of angels, where's some big splash, right? That wasn't happening. And so, and yet I knew that it was important. And so I set about trying to find ways to quiet my thoughts. And it was a particular quality of sound that really kind of moved me through that blockage. And so first it was things like tuning forks or gongs, Mm or uh, crystal bowls, brass bowls, anything that makes kind of that monotonous wah, wah, wah sound. And you were mentioning the box fan. I find that so interesting. And maybe we could analyze it to see if there's binaural beats in there because what we discovered was that those types of instruments like crystal bowls are actually emanating natural binaural beats. Mm -hmm. So anything that makes that kind of wah, wah, wah sound, that is potentially a binaural beat in training your brain and so how it works when I first started listening to them I found that I had a much easier time at quieting that voice inside I had a much easier time really finding that hypnagogic space where your body is profoundly relaxed but your mind is still aware and that's when you're starting to really get somewhere and so the the brainwave entrainment these recordings that contain binaural beats are designed to bring your brain from a thinking walking around awareness which is the beta state that's between 12 and 30 hertz below 12 hertz are all of the more relaxed brainwave states so alpha You're kind of in a focused, relaxed state. Theta, you're a little deeper. That's maybe a more meditative state or border, getting to that uh, border between delta and theta, which is where the hypnagogic space is. Delta is when you're asleep. That's roughly uh, zero to four hertz. So theta being four to seven hertz, right around four hertz between the uh, state of delta asleep and theta awake that's where the uh, brainwave entrainment really starts to help. So when you put one frequency in one ear, a slightly different frequency in the other ear, the difference between the two is matched up to the brainwave state we're trying to deliver. So four hertz, you would have two frequencies, say one 100 hertz, one 104 hertz. That's precisely what creates that wah-wah sound in the brain but Evan will tell you that the sound isn't creating it the brain perceives it that way so isn't that true and so that's what's maybe getting to the lower brainstem
2: right and that's where I think I mean when I'm in a a deep sacred acoustics meditation I'm no longer aware of hearing the tones themselves Mm -hmm. I'm in a very deep level that's kind of escaped from the kind of here and now and sense of self, so.
0: And I would say, you know, we hear about Tibetan monks who are such experts at meditating. They have to meditate 10,000 hours before they consider to be good at it. And in the West, I don't know, we just don't have that kind of time, (laughs) most of us, right? Because we have jobs and mortgages and children and and such. And so this is kind of like training wheels, I would say. It's a shortcut but it, it gets you to that space that then you can move on from there. So mm. it really helps you to learn how to maintain that state of, of four hertz uh, or maybe an eight hertz, which is a little a little less sort of relaxed, but still profoundly relaxed. And so once you learn how to get into these states, then you realize they're much more subtle. Yes. When you have this big expectation that there's gonna be this big splash or suddenly yeah. you know, an angel will show yeah. up, and it doesn't happen, you think, oh, I'm not doing it right. And yet, when you shift into these states, it's much more subtle. And so that's what I learned over time is that I could shift into these states and I learned to recognize them through listening to these binaural beats.
2: I think it's just important to point out that a huge part of this, as we often teach in our meditation workshops, is to realize that the voice in your head, that running stream of thoughts in your head is not your consciousness. No. That's your ego mind. I love how Michael Singer calls that running stream of thoughts yeah. in our head, the annoying roommate. Yeah. Uh, but a huge part of this is learning to put that little voice into timeout that is not gonna be your pathway to deeper understanding. In fact, you need to liberate yourself from that ego mind, uh, this little chatterbox monkey mind running within the head and sacred acoustics is a beautiful tool to do just that, learn to just focus on the breathing, learn to focus on the tones themselves, just ride the beautiful uh, waves of tones as they come at you. Uh, and uh, you can make an intention, uh, state of purpose at the beginning of a meditation, but then that linguistic. Voice that little ego mind can go into timeout, mm. and you just relax and ride the tones and let it happen. And that's where I think people start to realize the universe gifts them with certain insights, realizations, emotional truths, etc., that become apparent uh, in this deep, relaxed state.
1: Yeah, I have a couple thoughts floating around that I want to grab on before I forget them. Um, Going back to about, you can't read about it, you can't, you know, learn about it. Alan Watts had a great thing about, you know, calling meditation like uh, swimming. And he was like, you can convince people to go up to the edge of the diving board and they don't want to jump in the water. So they'll start getting diving instructions. They'll start going through the motions using little dolls. They'll be reading about it. And eventually you got to go up and just push them, <laughs> push them in the water. Um, the other thing was, um, Karen, what you said about not being able to find a moment, there was a quote I used to have on my laptop all throughout college when I was trying to get into medical school, and I would just always be flustered. And it was um, everyone in uh, sit was imp- implied to meditate. Everyone should sit for 20 minutes a day, unless, of course, you don't have the time, in which case you should sit for an hour. And I always, <laughs> there you go. I love it. I always like that one. It was just like, uh, it's just kind of like the slap across the face. Uh-uh, sit yeah. down. Um,
2: I time yeah. A third one.
1: A, yeah. A third one was um, what you were saying about training wheels. Um, I think the I don't think it was my I'd love to claim it as my own, but I don't believe it was my own. It was someone talking about sacred acoustics on one of the comments of the videos. And it was it kind of like there's kind of some analogy to like Tibetan monks. But it was like if you're climbing a mountain and you want to get to the top and you want to see the whole view. It can be very flustering if the entire mountain is shrouded in fog. What's simple, it makes it a lot easier, is if there's just like a rope or a railing. Just focus on the railing. You just kind of one hand in front of the other, one hand, the next thing you know, you'll look around and you'll you'll be there you'll I you look, yeah, you'll look around and you're there when you don't have the railing it can be very intimidating because it's like you said you sit there and you're like i've been meditating for 35 minutes where's bliss where's the Atman? where's you know <laughs> exactly. i haven't i haven't transcended space and time like what's going on and it's it's just the baby steps going up and then lastly i've got all these thoughts flying in my head dr alexander What you just said kind of gifting insights um how I the the analogy I use is in the Civil War. Right towards the end of the Civil War, they actually first started using hot air balloons. I think they only used them once or twice, but they'd go up. Their life was very short, but they'd go up and they'd um and they'd write everything down that they saw, troop movements and everything, and then come back down. I think there are some beautiful uh, analogous points to meditation. Is when you when you go up you kind of get this view of the landscape. And that's where, at least for me, I use it for like long-term goals. You know, I might get flustered about the podcast. I'm like, it's not big enough. I'm never gonna be Joe Rogan. And then I go up there and I look and I'm like, hey, you got this one today. If you get this guy and this guy and this guy, and maybe some more followers, you'll be able to get that guy. And in the distance you can see the mountains and you're like, okay. And then the balloon deflates and you come back down, but you kind of have that imagery. Sorry, I had those four points I wanted to get out before I lost them. But it's – yeah, it's I, – I didn't know that that was – I guess that's something new I learned was I didn't know that it wasn't the sound. It was your brain's perception of the sound.
2: Yeah, it's it's actually – Um, What you're doing is you're creating an oscillation in the lower brainstem, and that's been known in many different techniques to help engender a transcendental state of conscious awareness. Think of people who use a a pendulum as a visual target to induce a a hypnotic state in people. That slow left-right movement um, is doing the same thing by uh, asking the eyes to follow the target. You're invoking circuits in the midbrain uh, and, uh, parts of the lower brain stem to coordinate that movement. Likewise with post-traumatic stress disorder being treated by what's called EMDR or eye movement desensitization reprocessing. That's another form of basically rapid eye movements invoking these circuits down in the midbrain and, and lower circuits uh, to, to cause this left-right oscillation and it can be very powerful at inducing transcendental states of conscious awareness. Sacred acoustics is a beautiful example of that.
1: That's that's yeah, it's and Karen, what you were saying with with following the breath or sort of using training wheels, can you speak on um you know can't find the time of day taking care of a teenage uh a teenage uh top child, and it's I guess teenagers mm-hmm. or children, but it's and then you're looking for it, and you're like, where are the you know where are the angels where's the where's the beam of where's the splash can you can you talk about um what you did find.
0: Yes, yes. And so that was, that was very unexpected. I had no idea what I was doing, but my reason for listening is because listening to sacred acoustic, uh, not sacred acoustics at the time, listening to binaural beats and trying to engender these kinds of states was I wanted to have an out of body experience, or I wanted to have an apparition show up and give me some important message. And again, this wasn't happening. And uh, what did happen when I first started to really get somewhere, when my mind would quiet down, when I would start to find you know, more access to that inner part of me, what I discovered was emotional trauma that I didn't even realize I had. And so what I first would encounter were these feelings of sadness or loneliness or despair. And I just really was flummoxed by that. And fortunately I had good mentors and it was suggested to me that I was tapping into emotions that were already in my system that were not properly processed. And so there they sat. And so when you start to get quiet inside, you kind of trigger these things. It can also happen in regular meditation, I understand, but for me, it was through uh, listening to recordings and also another form of meditation where I would focus on the heart. I would imagine my breath was moving in and out of the heart, and this was really the bit that started to get that uh, emotional trauma bubbling up. And so at first, I was very disconcerted by this, but again, when I was taught that this was emotions that weren't properly processed, I was taught to allow those emotions to come forth Mm -hmm. to as i was told sit with them and as i sat with them i was told and it did take place that way as you sit with these emotions and kind of just allow yourself to feel them they evolve they change they shift and so what i learned is that when i did this process i could then release these emotions so i didn't need to have you know 10 years of talk therapy for my intellectual mind to figure out what these little traumas were. I could actually just feel them again, allow them to be released. Occasionally, I did put a story to them. Oh, this was because of this event with my father. But in the end, it was that visceral feeling of them allowing them to be released. Once I kind of went through that process over a number of months, I would even say years, and it was off and on, I would have, you know, beautiful experiences. And then I would have these kind of not so beautiful, but the uh, allowing my emotional traumas to be released is what allowed me to have those more beautiful experiences. Because once I was able to clear through my sort of, you know, you were mentioning, you know, confidence over your uh, podcast, and I'm sure you have other things where we all kind of want to know, well, am I doing this Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and so after a time, I realized that once I let go of of not only those emotional traumas, but also limiting beliefs. The the main limiting belief I had at that at, in relation to this is that I couldn't meditate. I thought like many people in the West think, oh, that's not for me. I'm too busy. My brain is so analytical. It's more important that I make lists and. You know perform tasks and and that's what i believed that i was one of those people so i started to shift that belief and that was intellectual where i would feel that i would sort of hear that thought come up notice that thought and then i would immediately shift that thought to no, i can meditate i am a meditator all souls can meditate mm-hmm. and that along with releasing my emotional uh, traumas i'll say and i'll point out that um Those two things together, you know, helped me move forward, but I'll point out that I wasn't necessarily someone who had an emotional traumatic past. These were kind of just regular things that I did. You know, parents got divorced, and so this. I wasn't abused. It wasn't extreme. But all of us, somehow, especially when we're children, when we don't understand what's going on, we set patterns in ourselves. And sometimes not to our... uh, benefit as we find out much later in years. So identifying those patterns and then uh, intellectually and emotionally sort of releasing and shifting that energy, then we start to have some amazing things happen. And I think that was the question you were really asking. And so once I kind of worked through all this, I learned that there were kind of two approaches. One is you could do what Evan was kind of describing a moment ago, where you listen to these recordings with your headphones, as always, always use headphones to get that binaural signal properly. But when you put on your headphones, you can sort of do a passive listening routine where you, and I do recommend this to begin with, to kind of see how you respond without trying to make anything happen. So this passive listening can sometimes bring people to sort of a a beautiful kind of fuzzy space where they feel that connection to something greater they don't necessarily know what it is and i was one of those people i felt this energy and uh the other way to listen though is with sort of active engagement of the mind where you set an intention where you ask a question where you uh you know ask you know something like what is my purpose and so I started doing that sort of thing where I would ask questions set goals and see if I could achieve them through setting an intention and I learned that if I listen to the recordings especially when they got me to into a theta state recall uh, just note that children under the age of seven are naturally in a theta state mm-hmm. and this is when children are just soaking up all of this information you know learning language and uh how to get by in the world as a human you know based on their culture and parenting we are little sponges at that time so the theta state really gives us an opportunity to i'll say reprogram or recast what's going on in our brains and so i would start to ask questions initially just you know what is my purpose or or kind of very broad things like that. And I started to get answers. Yeah. And the answers would come in forms of symbols. They would come in forms of knowing, uh, forms of uh, kind of just receiving the information and understanding it without necessarily knowing where it came from or or how it all was put together. And this can seem a little funny at first. You think, oh, I'm just making up these answers. That's yeah. just me My my, and another part of me making it up. And I would say, well, yes, it is another part of you, but it's a more expanded part of you. And one that potentially is more neutral. It isn't as sort of uh, uh, programmed to think a certain way. It kind of allows you to get a broader perspective. And so practicing this neutral state within over time allowed me to bring that neutral state into my daily interactions. And so what I mean by this is when you're practicing, uh, not eliminating your thoughts, but having them be less prevalent. What happened for me is that those thoughts would still exist, but I wasn't placing my attention on them. And to know that, I think it was from Peter Russell and Eckhart Tolle were having a conversation on YouTube about this when I had my aha moment, that I could just, Move my attention from the thoughts, place my attention somewhere else. They didn't have to be completely silent, right? So, as you play, as those thoughts are going on, you can place your attention, say, on your breath or the tones or your intention. The thoughts kind of fade in the background, but they're still there. And I learned if I place my attention on something else, it didn't matter if those thoughts were still going on because my attention wasn't on them. And that was a big aha moment because many times, people will say, well, my mind wasn't blank. I'm still having the thoughts. And it's like, well, place your attention somewhere else. And then you start to move to that place where you don't notice those thoughts at all. And once you practice this, this uh, in meditation, that neutral sort of observer, as we say, the part of you that notices when your thoughts have wandered, that's your observer. And so being cognizant of that, let's say i would be in a conversation with someone that got a little contentious and maybe a, an art yeah an argument was starting my inner neutral observer would kick in with that larger perspective, kind of simultaneously as I was having the conversation and sort of guide me on that larger perspective. Oh, if you would say this, this would shift everything or realize where that other person is coming from and maybe shift your attitude to get them to understand. That sort of thing started going on in my mind and I was able to shift conversations in the moment to turn them into constructive conversations instead of something that might, you know, be more destructive or escalate into just an argument that's much harder to get out of. So that's kind of how in my meditative space I was able to uh, create this mind that just has more ability to manage situations as they arise. And so while I was having these beautiful experiences in meditation where I could connect to loving energy, I could uh, encounter beings that I would, you know, ask questions of and such. I was also able to apply this in my daily life. Now I did want to point out that, uh, you know, we were talking about expecting to see a cloud or, or some kind of very obvious thing with our mind's eye. Many of us think that we have to see it in our mind's eye, exactly like we see it in the physical world. And that does happen for some, but I will tell you, it does not happen for most. Mm. Most people are not able to visualize in the same way in meditation as we see in this regular world. However, at first that made me uh, think that I wasn't getting you know, real information. If I didn't see it, then it wasn't as good as it could be that someone else was getting, right? We compare our experiences. But then I went through this uh, process of working with someone, it's actually the co-founder of Sacred Acoustics, who was incredibly visual during his experiences. And uh, when we would have these experiences together, uh, I'll, I'll point out that when we were creating these recordings to begin with, we would he would create something we would listen together and then our experience would guide us to make certain adjustments. And this is when I learned that he could see everything and I wasn't seeing like he was. But then we would compare notes. We would, we would present ourselves with a little challenge, like go to this, you know, planet Mars or whatever, pick up what you, you do. And it was usually a, not a specific location, but mm-hmm. an imaginary location or say the pyramids back in, uh, you know, ancient Egypt when Mm -hmm. they were built, something like that we would do. And what would happen is he could describe the same thing I could. I would just know the information. He would say that he could see it. And that's when I realized there's a lot of ways to get information not just, you know, through seeing some vision. And so uh, even uh, near-death experiencers will sometimes tell you that the vision is not the same as it is here, and they try to describe it. And it's kind of like knowing everything at once. And that same sort of feeling can be had deep in meditation.
1: It's it's kind of like, yeah, you don't need to see it, right? If if you had an IV drip and it was just saline solution, and then someone out of your out of your field of uh, sight, put in like Valium. You don't need to see the jar of Valium. You know, in ten seconds, and all of a sudden you're you're relaxed, you know it's there. Like you don't need. I it. love
0: your analogies. My
1: now, I this the only, I don't That's know. That's I, I don't know how <laughs> how to function without analogies, but it's. <clears throat> I wanted to say one of the things you said about trauma. Yeah, there's not a soul in this world that doesn't have trauma. A lot of people are. You know, I found myself doing that for years. I was like, I didn't grow up in like war-torn Africa. I was like, I went to a private catholic. I don't have any trauma. I lost a sibling to suicide in 2014 and then I was like, oh, that's my trauma. But then I'll have friends say to me, well, you know, I haven't dealt with anything that you've dealt with. And I'm just, it doesn't matter whether you lost a sibling or whether you your girlfriend broke up with you. It's all subjective trauma. It's, it's, you know, if it's, if it's me lifting 10 pounds or a football player lifting 300 pounds, if we're both going to the limit of our abilities we're experiencing the same subjective exertion so it's the same struggle but what you were saying about letting the sort of trauma come up it kind of reminds me of like you know it's been several years since i've been truly you know distraught and and uh, mourned my brother it's it's been almost seven years I've, I've luckily i look at it as a good thing moved forward when i do feel it come up though it's whereas it used to be like nausea Sometimes literally, you're gonna vomit. Now it's kind of like a, a spiritual burp. Like I kind of just feel it coming up. I don't try to force it, and I don't try to keep it back down. I'm just like, if I got a burp, like let you know, burp, there it is. And then maybe it's a couple months later. There's another spiritual burp. But and it reminded me of Dr. Alexander. Uh, I believe you said it in, in one of your lectures. Maybe you're. I think you were quoting Ramdas. But what Karen was saying about moving your mind as these things arise uh Dr Alexander you 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 uh I don't I, I can for the life of me say which lecture it was but you used something that Ramdas said and it was your mind is the street lamp at night let the thoughts be all the flies and the moths he's like let them orbit you he's like you don't need to engage them just be the light and they're going to they're going to fl- flicker around and then like as the morning light comes up they're going to go away But he was like just be the light in the center as the thoughts kind of slowly uh dissipate right yeah well, i
2: think that's a beautiful way of looking at it and, I, and just to kind of comment back on what karen was saying you know my own journey of discovery and kind of child uh wound was of the adoption abandonment wound mm-hmm. that i'd been given up for adoption when i was 11 days old Um, And, you know, we talk about that a lot and not only in Proof of Heaven, but especially in Living in Mindful Universe, because I've come through my NDE initially and then certainly through my uh, 10 plus years of meditative experience since then. Uh, I've come to a much better position in terms of kind of resolving that early uh, abandonment wound. And I would say all of us in many ways have kind of a similar wound, uh, our very separation from the spiritual realm when we come into this material world and where there's that Um, anticipated forgetting Uh, for example the scientists who study uh, past life memories in children's suggestive reincarnation at uva insist you have to get at those memories before age six or seven because they're natural processes they cover them up Uh, and likewise my abandonment wound in many ways is kind of covered up Um, And in fact, my father, who had been an academic neurosurgeon, who should know something about memory, uh, kept telling me, you can't possibly remember something that happened to you when you were only a few weeks old. And what I came to realize is he was wrong that I did have a memory of it, but it was pre-verbal. So it was very hard to get at. And not only that, it was a deep kind of smoking crater uh, that I wasn't worth existing because my own mother had left me behind. Uh, So that really dominated my kind of view of myself and the universe, and much of my early life was spent trying to justify that I had a reason to exist and try not to get thrown away again. That's really what was driving it, and I would say a lot of my journey, especially as it was revealed through that near-death experience, was really one of that being worthy of love. And I think so many of us can identify with that. In fact, when I came back from my NDE, I realized that the problem isn't that we don't love our neighbor or our enemy enough, so we don't love ourselves enough we don't recall the divine spiritual sacred beings we are all interconnected through that divine force of love that god force that is a connector for all of us to each other and to all life and to this universe uh and it's important to remember that recall that and that's what a lot of my meditations over the last 10 years have have been around is recovering that sense of love of the universe uh you know for me and my soul and my soul journey which is something i didn't have available to me in any a robust form before my NDE. So I'm very grateful for all of that. But
0: I will point out, when I met Eben, this was after his NDE, three years after his NDE. And I was pretty far along on, you know, working with my heart, understanding my own traumas and realizing that love comes from within. Mm -hmm. I create the love myself, all of that. And so I was very interested and I was in the habit of asking people this. So I asked Eben, he was talking about this amazing love on the other side. He was also very focused on the implications that had for science. But I was very curious about that love. And so I asked him, I said, okay, well, that love is over there. Do you you think it can be here? Oh, no, it's much too powerful. That's what all the, the near-death experiences I've asked have said. And I, I have to trust them because they know both both versions of that. But I have had at that time touched some pretty amazing loving energy so I was really curious about this idea of bringing it back here and I don't know the difference but I do know it's pretty darn powerful the experiences that I've had and so I asked him I said well you talk about this love but do you love yourself and that's when I learned about his adoption wound. he said no no I don't I, I, I I'm not worthy of it and I'm like oh my gosh a near death experience like that feeling that energy, it doesn't automatically Mm-mm. cure you, right? It doesn't automatically make you completely immune from your human traumas. And so so we started discussing that more and uh, eventually intellectually you realized, oh my gosh, yeah. it, it's ridiculous to think I'm not worthy of love, especially after having that experience. But the visceral feeling part was much harder. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that,
2: that's that's why these kind of deep wounds that you spoke of earlier are so hard to get at. They're kind of wrapped around our heart. They've been there often uh, since we were young children, and uh, maybe before our kind of age of reason at age six or seven. Um, Although
0: even at that age, I was making decisions. Yeah, that, of uh, course you were yeah. kind
2: of ahead of the game. But but,
0: but well, I was making decisions <laughs> that were to my detriment. Like when my parents were divorced. I've identified this one moment when we were asked. Who do you want to live with? Myself and my two brothers. We were asked to make a choice between our two parents. And and you were seven years old. I was seven, six or seven. Yeah, and my brothers were both just taken aback. They were like, oh, we can't decide. Are you crazy? And I, though was a little upset with my father because he had been away for two years in Vietnam. And I felt like I didn't really know him and I immediately said, well, I'm I'm gonna live with my mother. And so in that moment, I chose to reject my father and it felt fine in that moment. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's the right thing to do, I live with my mother. I stayed somewhat in touch with my father but really reconnected with him after college. And all of this made me realize how much that decision affected me on how well I was able to form relationships with men. Mm -hmm. I had decided I didn't need men and yet I wanted to have a relationship with a man. So it was this bizarre conflict going on. And after all of that was released again, before I met Evan, it was no longer a problem. It was very interesting how focusing on our inner world and kind of resolving these kind of issues Will automatically have an effect on our outer world without us even realizing. I was amazed because I wanted certain things in my life that I couldn't make happen. And yet, after I started going within, everything in my outer life just started taking care of itself. Yeah. It was pretty, mm-hmm. pretty amazing. It,
1: yeah, it, it does. It all starts, you know, I think that's one of the things that, you know, I had been meditating throughout college and right when I finished. I had my first psychedelic experience with psilocybin, and one of the things I thought was like, I just did this whole, you know, I was a terrible student my whole life, was not, I mean, truly was a a bad student up until my sophomore year of college, and then something flipped in my head, and I got straight A's for the next six semesters, got into medical Um. school in Miami. And when I graduated, there was this thought in my mind that was like, man, you know, I just did this crazy thing. For me, this was like scaling the academic Mount Everest. I'd really like to go like what if I could do something else? What if I could do something I actually loved and make money? and my mind was always you can't do that you know you're not you're not joe rogan you're not a you know you're not a musician you're not an artist you're and what you were saying is it's kind of like what are you capable of? you know I can meditate or I can be loved. I was like, my uncle who went to Duke Medical School. I remember him telling me he was like if you 're smart enough to get into medical school you're smart enough to do whatever you'd like, <laughs> and I was like. Oh, so there's this moment of like, I can do it. I don't know. And that was eight years ago. And it's really only now that the podcast is kind of slowly working. But it is like, it's this sort of like, you have to accept that you can do it. And it does slowly start shifting things outside of you. It's like changing the GPS on like a, I don't know, like a self-driving car. You know, you just press a couple buttons. But all of a sudden, like the landscape around you slowly starts shifting and changing. Um, Dr. Alexander, what I want to say about... um, self-love is yeah that that's incredible to come out of the nde and and still not feel that but i want to say is i mean i'm i'm 30 and a half years old i really i don't think i've truly liked myself probably until i was 30 i don't think i've truly you know i think i tolerated myself but i don't think it's until and not like a blind like arrogance like i'm the best but i don't think i've slowly been able to like step outside of myself and been like You know, pat myself on the back and be like, hey, man, you've had a wild ride and like you've done okay." I don't think I've truly loved myself until this past year of my life. So that's incredible that everything you've been through, that was still a hurdle that you you couldn't you couldn't get over until after the NDE. Well, p- people
2: often think, you know, that in an NDE you come to infinite knowledge and you come back with a perfect understanding of yourself. And I would say that's just that's not necessarily true at all. But what does happen is you see kind of your soul journey and your self in relation to the universe in a much grander way okay. than you're used to seeing. And so, in many ways, it instructs you. Uh, it informs you. Um, it uh, can be very refreshing and liberating. Uh, and yet I would say fully assimilating and integrating a near-death experience can take the rest of your lifetime, if not beyond.
0: If they say seven years is a big
2: Well, that's kind number. of a big number that yeah. people throw out there. But I would say, you know, I'm I'm um, what, thir- uh, coming up on 12 and a half years, after my NDE, and I feel like I still have a tremendous amount to learn. Now, of course, the other side of it is, um, as a scientist, I've always felt that uh, I had to explain everything in my life, uh, you know, through the scientific lens. So I've been very demanding about, uh, you know, what is my resultant understanding going to be? For one thing, uh, you know, given my knowledge of neuroscience, um, I I realized uh, as I was putting everything together in the months after my coma, going to my doctors, talking with them, reviewing (laughs) medical records, the neurologic exams, the scans, lab values, it wasn't lining up. This was, you know, the medical records I was reviewing were a man who was destined to die from a very yeah. severe case of gram-negative bacterial meningoencephalitis involving all eight lobes of the brain, and it looked inevitable that death. And yet, I didn't die. And not only that, uh, you know, my doctors estimated by the end of that week in coma, I was down to a two percent chance of survival. Um, but by chances of recovery, they expect to be far less than that. So it truly was a, a medical miracle to have that that kind of recovery. And that's what I realized in the months after my coma. That's why I ended up uh, electing to publish, you know, share my story uh, and publish it. And of course, you need to understand that no indie ebook had ever really done very much in terms of uh, being a bestseller. But uh, I had no idea that, uh, proof of heaven was going to make except this flash after it life, except life, life after life. But yeah. that's a story of you know a hundred NDE's. Yeah. Uh, but for one indie story to really uh, kind of rock to the top was not anything that I was expecting. Even though it you know it makes sense in looking back on it, and that's why the scientific community takes my story so seriously, and that's why I love that. For example, uh, Bruce Grayson's new book after. Uh, discusses in Chapter Ten my experience and the kind of importance to it to the scientific community. So anyway, um, but no, those answers didn't all come at the very get-go with the experience itself. Uh, although it's a tremendous catalyst for change, and that's what my NDE provided. But I would I would absolutely insist on the importance of my meditative experience and in intentionally cultivating mm. a relationship with that spiritual realm in the decades since my coma. And
0: I just want to point out because you guys are dancing around it and i'm gonna (laughs) go right in there about this self-love and so so tommy you said something really interesting that i identify with when you said that you know you loved yourself but you didn't like i forget how you said it but in other words tolerated myself you tolerated yourself and so it's interesting to me sometimes when i ask people do you love yourself or used to do that um, they would rattle off a bunch of qualities that they admired about themselves. Right. So they would say, well, yes, I am a good father. I'm a, you know, excellent at this. Of course I love myself. And I'm thinking, you know, not tolerate necessarily, but they admired themselves and you use that word arrogant. That's kind of how it comes across, but love is completely different. And I was very confused by how to love myself because admiring my qualities did not seem like love at all. And so loving myself, I was used to loving others You direct it somewhere and how to direct it to myself was very confusing. But I got advice at the time, this was through uh, the research of math. Uh, who has been researching the heart for decades in Northern California, but they would, they would advise people who know about heart math that generating a feeling of gratitude in your heart helps get you that brain heart coherence. And so when I was going through generating these feelings of gratitude, that's when I realized how self-love could really work. And as I was doing this, it was very challenging. I could think of things I was grateful for, but I couldn't Feel. I couldn't generate a feeling, especially in my heart like they were saying should happen. And uh, so the advice was to kind of review all of your past memories and when did you feel that way and imagine that you're in that situation again. So for me, it was when a stray dog we had taken in gave, puppy, gave birth to puppies under my bed. This was this big magical moment. Remembering my connection to dogs and puppies is what really helped my heart feel this gratitude it was actually quite amazing the first time it happened and so then I learned I could generate it at will and over time it took some practice but as it would as I would practice generating I realized that this gratitude sure felt like love and so by generating gratitude slash love within myself that's how I came to learn to love myself by becoming that love, by activating it within, cultivating that feeling and knowing what HeartMath tells us, that the uh, heart naturally radiates whatever emotions you're feeling to the world around you. And I thought, oh my gosh, I don't want anyone to get these non-beneficial feelings I'm feeling, that really motivated me to generate this love, not just for myself, because we're taught that that's so selfish, not just for myself, but as I do this, I'm affecting people around me without even having to say a word. So that was my motivation, that's what I, uh, to try to explain to Eben early on, and that was that worked for you, right? It worked generating those feelings. It,
2: it worked uh, tremendously well, and I'd say a huge part of this process uh, that I've undergone in this, uh, you know, twelve years, uh, thirteen years since my NDE, and especially with all the sacred acoustics meditations that I've built in. Um, is uh, kind of a sense of, of of a difference between kind of your conscious, unconscious, the aspect of you that we look at as self—you know, the running stream of thoughts in the head, the annoying roommate—and um, a higher sense of self uh, that I think is certainly very lovable it's not an egocentric sense of self but it's a higher sense of a kind of sacred divine self that is involved with this primordial mind and that can have altruism and can have the highest good for all the benefit uh for all to uh, occur in any set of circumstances that you're addressing so it's it's a different way of looking at self that is more mature and expanded than a view of just the ego self and the ego mind. And I think that's where we can be very liberated by this kind of um, elaboration of our connection and cultivation of our connection across the veil through meditation or centering prayer. so that we can love ourselves as those divine, eternal, healing, spiritual creatures that we are interconnected with all of our fellow beings, bound together through the forces of love, compassion, and kindness. And that is a kind of an expanded self that has tremendous ability to contribute to the growth of this world.
1: There was, you know, I didn't think about it till just now, there's a, a lecture I'd listened to of Ram Dass several years ago, and I'd listened to it like every day for like a month. But he talks about his, his lesson for people that need to learn self love, and I completely forgot about it until just now, was uh, he would say, you get you get like five pictures, and four of them are of people that you just adore, like you can't help. And he's like, for him, he had a picture of his mother. He had a picture of like, uh, Holy Mother Mary. He had a picture of Buddha, and he had a picture of I think his his guru Neem Crowley Baba. And then you have a fifth picture of someone you did not like. And for him, for whatever reason, it was Secretary of Defense Casper Weinberger. <laughs> and you hear Ram Das talking, you know, Ram, his voice. And you'd be like, so I would wake up every morning and, you know, mother, and holy mother, Buddha, name Crowley Baba. Good morning, Casper. <laughs> and he, and, and he goes, but what you do is you you get this person that you know, and it's Rom. He's you know just he's you know he's he's uh, he's protesting nuclear power, the Cold War buildup. You know uh, Vietnam is in the in the rearview mirror, but he's just he would take this picture and every day, and he'd be like, and when I'd feel any sort of tightness, and he'd tell myself he'd be like, you still have work to do, and then once he got past Casper, he was like. And then I chose someone else that I didn't like more and he was like, That person's in my life, so I won't say who it is. (laughs) But like he would and that just got me thinking, like and then to kind of tie that back around to what you said earlier, Karen, is when you're talking to people and you can you can sort of go somewhere else. I do that with people I have on this podcast. If you know, we start getting into a conversation and we get to a fork in the road of political beliefs or opinions or, or theist opinion or whatever. And it starts going one way or the other. I can find myself starting to like, oh, I'm gonna about to lay into this person, and instead, I'll just, I'll be, I'll challenge myself because I'm, I am, a, you know, a, an eight type personality, and I'll be like, I, I say in my mind, I bet, I bet you can't sit here and like smile, and I'll tell myself, and this person will be going against everything I stand for, and I'll just, I'll be nodding, but then as I do that, I start to, I'm like, oh, is this a bad per, like. From the get-go, is this a bad person? Is this someone you don't respect? Is this is this a Nazi? Is this a, a you know, a murderer? And, you know, my, uh, no, this is, this is my buddy. This is my friend. This is an author I like. Okay, so clearly this is someone you respect. You think they're a good person. And it wasn't up until 10 seconds ago you realized you guys held different political beliefs. Well, if you respect them in every other aspect, they're clearly a good person, which can only mean that y'all's divergent beliefs... They grew up in different circumstances and have different things leading to different opinions. There's probably someone out there with the exact opposite experience of you, Karen, who went and lived with their dad and they could never formulate a relationship with their mother. And you kind of and I find myself at first, I'd be like, just sit there and smile. And then I'll be like, this person's coming from a place where they want the same thing I want. They want the best for their nation, for their neighborhood, for their finances. And it forces me to slowly start. It goes from tolerating them to starting to you start to as Ram Das says, it's you start to see everyone is God in drag. You start to see everyone of like you know oh what a wonderful way you've come on today, God. You know you're wearing this this outfit of Karen or Eben or Tommy. Like what what a wonderful way. And I'm kind of realizing as I'm saying it out loud that if you can sit there and you know hello Casper, if you can start to tolerate and then move from tolerating to loving well clearly you know i think if you can learn to love someone that you truly don't like man it's got to be a you know it's that's only one step away from finally loving yourself you know i i love everybody else i tolerate myself i hate that guy well if you can love that guy well man then i think you can love yourself right yeah it's um (laughs) this is my i should be paying you guys i'm having my own therapy session i'm learning i'm um, we so we didn't we didn't touch on it. Um, but in the final five seven minutes, Karen, you said that you're helping uh, or you did co-author for uh, the third book. What what is the third book? Did did I miss a beat? Was I? It's yeah. It's called um. In fact, we have copy,
0: have right here. It's called Living in a Mindful wait. Universe.
1: Oh no! Wait, we did we did that one. Yeah. Yeah, that's one we co-authored. Oh, okay. So okay. I'm be- sorry.
0: Yeah, you might be thinking the second book, uh, you might not be remembering The Map of Heaven was the second book.
1: Okay, yeah, that's, that's, okay, that, I skipped a beat then, because I was like, what? I was like, I thought I was up to date. Um, You are up to date, don't worry. Okay, okay, well, again, in the, in the final five, five minutes, what is on the, can you guys talk about it? What is on the horizon for you two? What is, do you have any projects in the works? Do you have anything that's coalescing in the ether? Or do you have to keep that quiet? Or does anything exist at all?
0: Well, I think we could mention that um, it's not brand new, but about a year ago when the pandemic started, we began a regular webinar series Mm -hmm. of our own. And uh, we have been, over the last year, connecting with people we normally would have seen when we were out traveling. So people like Pim Van Lommel, Raymond Moody, Anita Morjani, uh, countless folks. And we've been discussing their work from our perspective and finding that that common ground that is there. And so if people are interested in that, they can go to unitedinhopeandhealing.com and you can register. It's completely free and we're continuing uh, that for the near future. We've actually, I personally have uh, uh, enjoyed doing online Zoom webinars rather than doing them in person. <laughs> I'm the opposite of a lot of people, but... Uh, we are continuing to do more and more online programming. And so the opportunity that gives is that so many more people can be reached, not just the people in the geographical location where we travel to. So I think we're going to keep doing more and more of that.
2: Yeah, well, I, I've loved those webinars because uh, we've been blessed over the last Decade uh, in meeting a lot of very interesting people, experiencers, and meditators, and scientists who study consciousness and uh, everything—a wide uh, kind of range of kind of interesting personalities. And uh, we're we're recently aware of people who go in and binge watch, you know, <laughs> at United in Hope and Healing dot com because it really is a beautiful set of kind of discussions, conversations with uh, uh, like-minded souls where we really get into some beautiful territory that I think is very liberating and refreshing for people, especially in the current era where we feel so kind of locked down with COVID and, um, and a that, lot of death and bereavement. And I was going
0: to say that's our common theme yeah. is that we are so much more than our physical bodies. So being physically separate does not mean we're spiritually separate right. and we can connect. And we always talk about, topics that, uh, you know hint at there is life beyond death there is much more to us and we come back again and again and there's a much bigger picture than uh at least the western world realizes in humanity's journey forward so all of that is to help people realize we are more empowered than we think we are the reason that the world exists our consciousness is part of a much larger consciousness and each soul on earth is an integral, integral piece of that whole. Without one soul, we often say no soul left behind. Without one of those souls, we're not complete. So the COVID crisis has really given us this idea we're all in this together, and we literally are all in this together.
1: Yeah.
2: Right. It's it's a beautiful gift to share. Uh, And so we invite people certainly to join us at united hope and visit us at yeah. alexander.com sacredacoustics.com. Yeah, there's a you, tremendous if, amount of information and
0: if you're on the united and hope and healing list you'll hear all about our newest uh, webinars and and whatever we're up to so best way to stay stay in touch
1: awesome I was gonna say it in in I guess one last nod to Ram Das. there's <laughs> uh, apparently he's just you know he's just popping up today but he he would talk about um he would talk about in in a way only he can when he would work with like prisoners, like life sentence people, people on death mm-hmm. row, he would say, um, you know, you use time to get free of time. So if you're in jail, you'd be like you use it to meditate. And in a way only he could look at it. He would be like, In a way, you know, he'd be like prison or even solitary confinement. It's like it's state sanctioned meditation. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. you have to go sit in a cell And think about what you've done and he's like you know not everyone looks at it that way but he's like you can look at it as you know we're all prisoners and there are guards or you can look at it as you know i get free meals people protect me and i get to meditate all day and and, and only a way like that yeah only a way he could do it but it's making me think of like what is covid you know is this a pandemic and that's not to make light of the million or hundreds of thousands that have died but is this sort of like a like a virus sanctioned, you know, the world's getting crazy. It's like it paused for a year. Everybody stop. No Olympics, no March Madness, no airports. Everybody go home and meditate. And it's, you know, it's kind of, again, not to make light of it, but I feel like it's a it's a way to kind of look at like make the most of it. When it's the,
0: an opportunity. Yeah. Yes. It, yeah.
1: it can definitely be and, a win-win situation.
0: And that's how we look at it. Yeah. So,
1: as, yeah. as soon as the pandemic started, I remember telling myself, I was like, there's two ways I'm coming out of this. I'm either going to be 100 pounds more and depressed. Or I was like, <laughs> what if I just did one podcast a day? It's only 15 days. I can get 15 days. Okay, well, it's going to be 30 days. It's going to be 60 days. And kept going and going and going. And again, it's sort of that Ram Dass light. I looked at it as the best possible thing. Everyone's stranded at home. People I normally couldn't get in touch with, all their schedules are cleared and they're at home with internet connection, so make the most of it. But it is noon on the nose, so I will wrap this up. Ms. Karen Newell, Dr. Evan Alexander. Always welcome back on my podcast. I would love to have you guys back on. It's always a pleasure, and I know I've given you this compliment three times now, so it's probably losing its weight, but I truly mean it. It's like... Rom Dass or Alan Watts would say, when you're around someone else that seems to be on a higher level, it feels like you're kind of around around a nice fire. As always, I do feel that when talking to you, Dr. Alexander, and now with you, Karen, I there's a there's a warmth, there's a there's a spiritual bonfire, and I always leave nice and toasty, and it's 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 incredibly soothing. That's the best compliment I can give. So thank you very much, and I, I truly mean that.
2: Well, Tommy, I certainly get that feeling from you too. Oh, so, thank me. you for what you're <laughs> doing. You're doing a wonderful job for this world, getting uh, uh, this uh, very kind of important message out to all. So, thank you. Tommy. Thanks for all
0: your efforts. Yes, thank, thank you. you so much.
1: Thank you for being on here, Karen. I, I hope you had fun on your first time, and uh, I hope it's not the last time. So, yes, yeah,
0: very much fun. I'd love to come back. <laughs> yes, yeah, you thank
1: beautiful, you. Beautiful, be beautiful, back. beautiful. Yeah, yeah. We'll go. I'll, I'll email. I'll email. Um, I'll email Elizabeth. I would love All to right. do a reincarnation episode. I think that would be awesome. Yeah. Totally. We'd love to cover that. Yes. All right. Thank you very much. All right, much. Tommy. Thanks a lot. God bless talk you. Too. Yes, sir.
2: Bye-bye. You guys take
1: Bye-bye. You. Goodbye.